Welcome to Hell Week. Welcome to the Nursery Podcast and welcome to Hell Week. This is our new series that JP and I put together for rising interns and actually for anybody who's interested in our training programs. This is a consolidated series to try to get you ready, all the things you need to know in order to be a training neurosurgeon. Hi everybody, JP here. The usual disclaimers. The information in this podcast does not constitute medical advice. The opinions expressed are our own and don't reflect those of any institution or professional organization. But perhaps most importantly, we're going to loosen up a little for this series. So expect some constructive advice, some controversial stories, but most importantly, get ready to learn. Now, let's get started. Welcome to another episode of Hell Week. Uh, JP, it's been a, a good run and I've gotten some nice emails as have you about what we've been doing and I think this is going to be a very successful series. Um, we've gotten some input from listeners indicating that this uh, might actually help them get through their first year. What do you think of that? Well, I think that's very gratifying. I mean, that's the, the whole reason that we're doing this podcast in general is to, to help people and get good ideas out there. And specifically, this mini series is to help the rising class of interns feel prepared on July 1st. Yeah. So I know that one of the topics you wanted to cover, and, and I think it's a really uh, salient point that many of us are drawn to this field of neurosurgery because it, uh, it, it sort of has trappings of power and authority and importance, and maybe a bit of danger too. And with that comes the other side of the razor's edge, right? I mean, the other side, which is that it can be a little bit intimidating or threatening even to the people who are not neurosurgeons. Don't you think, JP? Couldn't agree more. I mean, as, as we frequently say on this show, and as I think all of our listeners understand, uh, neurologic disease is among the most threatening disease known to mankind, be it cranial, be it spine. Um, these are high acuity and very unforgiving pathologies that we deal with. And therefore, the situations that we find our patients in, and somewhat more importantly for today's topic, the situations we find ourselves in, in relation to those patients and feeling responsible for their outcomes can be very daunting. Yeah. So, so now that uh, you guys out there are about to be interns and for the first time in your life actually carry that label of neurosurgeon, granted, you know, PGY1, right? But unless you were in research, and I guess in any sense, uh, unless you did a pre-residency fellowship, you basically are for the first time having this clinical role as a neurosurgeon, even if it is in training. And so you're going to encounter all kinds of scenarios where people around you are going to see that uh, label on your coat or the business card you hand them or just the way you introduce yourself. So let's start to unpack this. And I'm going to throw out a couple categories of people that this might impact professionally, of course. And so, um, you know, obviously patients and um, then there'll be uh, other healthcare providers, nurses, folks like that, physical therapists, occupational therapists, and then, of course, other physicians, physicians in training, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, so JP, help us unpack those different groups of people, maybe starting with the, with the patients. Sure. I mean, patients are the, the best place to start. They're obviously the, the most important group in that list. And kind of as you alluded to, and, and this point I think will reinforce as we work through each of these groups of people, is that from day one, 
when you, all, all of you listening today, show up as new interns, you're going to carry the label of neurosurgeon, Department of Neurosurgery. However, casually you, you introduce yourself to the patients by first name, by Dr. X, you are the representative and the embodiment of your whole department at that time. And so it can be very daunting and almost worrisome to find yourself in a situation where you're dealing with a patient who's afraid, who has some symptoms, they're looking to you for answers, and you're a brand new fresh recruit, even if you know the right thing to tell them, really to give the plan and, and to give the treatment course for that patient, you, you kind of have to run things by your superiors. And so you find yourself in a situation where there's a person in front of you with fears and anxieties that you want to solve for them, but you have to kind of hold things off and wait and go back and check with the plan and everything before you actually deliver that information to the patient. So there, there's so many dimensions and facets to this that can be very daunting for the new recruit. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you on a, on a tangent, JP, because it comes to mind now. So uh, everybody out there, and I'm sure you too, JP, has been in this scenario multiple times where the patient or the patient's family or the nurse or someone you're talking to uh, calls you a neurologist or, or says, oh, yeah, I know you're a neurologist, but and, and uh, what's, your, what's your response when they do that? You know, that, that happens more often than you would think, as I'm sure you know. Um, and it can happen with a variety of, of disciplines, be it neurology, be it if you're seeing people in the trauma bay, they think you're trauma surgery. I just politely correct them, not out of pride or, or any kind of ego like that, but just so they know who they're talking to. Yeah, I, you know, I find that I'm always correcting them. And it's probably so unnecessary, right? Because to them, there's no difference, right? You're the person taking care of them. But something about it, because we are almost like polar opposites, neurologists and neurosurgeons. And I'm always like, no, 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 listen, listen, there's going to be anything more different, neurology, neurosurgery, I'm a neurosurgeon, et cetera, et cetera. And, uh, and so, so that comes up. So maybe that's something that just generates more anxiety because it's it's almost like overbearing. But you're right, JP, when, when you talk to patients, you know, you hold... Uh, for better or worse, a lot of the cards. And the, the risk is that when, when you're in that role, oftentimes people can't even listen to you, right? They're not listening to what you're saying. They're trying to interpret what you're saying through your emotions or your hand gestures or body posture. And it's well known that people only remember like 30% of the stuff you said when you're consenting them for surgery even, right? So it's, it's quite interesting to me. Right. And I mean, this is, I, I think we're planning a whole separate episode about this, the psychology of the patient interaction. And, and everything that you just said is so important to think about what is the patient actually taking away from the words I'm saying out loud to them? And what, what am I really successfully communicating in that interaction? Um, but it's also very important, as you said, to observe that the label they assign to you while you're talking to them can bring out so many emotions and so many automatic connotations from the patient's point of view. And, and so that distinction, you know, are you the neurologist or the neurosurgeon can make all the difference in the world. If you're seeing someone in the emergency department, you're meeting them for the first time, you walk into their room or you walk up to their bed and you say, hi, I'm Dr. So-and-so with neurosurgery. Depending on where you are, depending on how the emergency department is working and how busy they are that night, they might not even know that neurosurgery was called. They might, they might not even know why neurosurgery was called. How frequently have we all found ourselves in the, situ in the situation where you walk into the room and you're the person telling this patient that their CT scan showed a mass, right? And so with all of these 
associations and scary big you know things associated with the term neurosurgeon when you walk into a room and introduce yourself as such it can automatically put a patient in a defensive or anxious posture yeah exactly exactly and i i would add another thing you know i think there's a lot of things you can do right uh, in terms of your roles as, as a surgeon, one is uh, the obvious ones like sit down to talk to them instead of standing mm-hmm. over them, uh, especially if they're in bed, right? They're laying in bed, they're in a very compromised uh, posture, and then you're standing over them, especially you're with a team of like six people, very intimidating. The, uh, the better way is to sit down next to and pull up a chair, take two minutes. And I think we talked about this with the consult about stopping time and, and making people feel like you, you did spend time with them. And that's a good, good technique. Have you learned any other tricks in terms of getting patients to really be able to open up to you and, and identify more openly with you? Absolutely. Um, I will say on, on the subject of, of sitting to talk to patients, when I was in medical school down there at Miami, one of the best instructors I had was a psychiatrist named Jeff Newport, and he taught me a a trick that I use for everybody. When we would round on patients in the hospital, he said, you know, oh, I always make a point to sit down when I talk to people. And I said, oh, so so you don't, you know, hover over them and make them feel inferior. And he said, well, yeah, that's a nice side effect, but mostly it's so when I'm ready to get out of the room, I can stand up, and that signals that our interaction is over. And I thought that was a great insight. Obviously, being a psychiatrist, he, he had some level of insight to the human mind. And so I've always kept that in mind in my own practice. But in, in addition to that kind of classic doctor move, you know, being a young person in the field myself, I tend to introduce myself by my first name and not Dr. Colson. Um, though when you walk in, you can get a sense of people and you can start to get a feel for what kind of patient should you be, oh, hi, I'm John with neurosurgery versus walk in and say, I'm Dr. Colson with neurosurgery. You can get a sense of what patient wants that title and authority with it and what patient wants the more personal, casual relationship. Um, similarly, if it's a patient you're meeting for the first time and it's a, it's a new consult, but you've already seen the imaging, you have a decent history either from the consulting physician or the chart, and you have a general sense of how that person's doing, I'll walk in and after a quick survey, maybe a brief exam and talking to them a little bit, I'll try to right from the get-go say, hi, you know, I'm John with neurosurgery. I'm so sorry this is happening. Such and such is going on. We saw this on your imaging. And just so you know, you're probably not going to need surgery. So relax. And I'll try to tell them that right out of the gate so that they're not just meeting a surgeon for the first time and for our whole conversation sitting there wondering, oh, God, are they going to cut me open? Right, right. Because people are afraid of surgery regardless, especially when when it's a surprise to them and you're delivering the news that way. So let's move on to the next group. Uh, and, and we could spend a lot of time on patients. But how about things like uh, talking to ancillary staff? So I would call like nurses, physical occupational therapists, dietitians, social workers, case managers, uh, secretaries, unit secretaries. Um, how do you approach that, JP? Well, this is a very interesting group of people to interact with because for the most part, they're going to be looking to you for marching orders um, simply because the, the way the healthcare system is structured is the physician and the team of physicians give the orders for the day and these ancillary staff carry them out. Now, the more seasoned folks, the nurses who have been at a hospital for years and years or the case managers who have been there for a comparable amount of time, they've seen residents come and go. And so many of them have taught me as, as much as anyone else in the field and will kind of, you know, take your hand and guide you when you're new. So 
for all of you rising interns, find those senior nurses and try to get a sense from them of what the daily norm is on a given floor or in a given unit. They've been there longer than you, and they can give you a sense of the, the habits and the culture of that unit. Um, but again, kind of getting back to that theme of fear and anxiety, when things go south for a patient or when a unit or a floor receives a new patient who's fairly sick, you're the person on call, you're the person representing your department, and so they're going to be looking to you for answers and often looking to you for reassurance just as much as the patients are. You know, the, the nurses and the ancillary staff look to the team of physicians to get a general sense of how sick is this person, what are we expecting for them, do we think they're going to do okay? And so even from day one, people are going to be looking to you to give that reassurance and to contextualize that patient for them within the hospital course. Yeah, exactly. They can be your strongest ally. Now, I don't want to get through kumbaya because I know that, you know, the, the reality is the world functions in a complex way. And I'm not certainly a kumbaya kind of person. Everybody uh, expresses themselves differently. And I think the great thing about these folks is they can really be strong allies. Um, one of my favorite books is The Five Love Languages. I've given oh, dozens and dozens of copies to people. But, you know, people express themselves differently. So here's here's a good example. Um, you know, I'm not the sweetest person. I don't sit there and kiss people's asses and all that. But, you know, I, 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 I'm materially uh, generous, if you will. And so when I was a resident, I would always, you know, bring food to the nurses, whether I made it myself or I'd get some donuts uh, from Dunkin' Donuts or, you know, like the, the residents would have a conference and the, it would be over and the food would just sit there and nobody would take it. And so, you know, you bring it to the nurses and they really, they appreciate that kind of thing. So I think there's a lot of gestures that you can do for these p people that really make them uh, appreciate what you're doing. Absolutely. And, and, you know, again, not to get too kumbaya, but they obviously do play a very real role in the patient's daily care. They spend more time with these people than any of us do on a minute to minute basis. And as you work longer and longer in the hospital, you're going to get a sense of the nurses who, you know, Oh, when this nurse calls me and says they're concerned, that's an issue. When this nurse calls me and says they're concerned, okay, this person may be nervous about everything. And so you, you'll quickly get a sense for uh, each nurse's own level of anxiety about patients and, and learn to interpret that. But similar to the material gifts, I'll tell you that just in this past year alone, for, for my experience at Rush, there have been more than a few situations where a patient we had on the floor something untoward happened. We had a, a hematoma after an A-lift, for example, and a nurse caught it because she thought, oh, that, that didn't look right. And she called me. And obviously I was annoyed because I had a million pages and there were you know, a million things to do that day. But a nurse called me and said, a post-op patient, something didn't look right with the belly. I ran up there. There was clearly something wrong. There was clearly some bleeding. That patient went straight back to the OR uh, you know, to, to fix the hemorrhage. And I took that nurse's side and I said, hey, great catch. You helped. You, you, know, you significantly improved this patient's course. You caught something before anyone else. Thank you for calling. Thank you for letting me know. Good job. And that little kind of reinforcement, I think, because those situations are thankfully so rare, that kind of reinforcement can really bolster someone's enthusiasm to you know, keep taking care of people. Yeah, we have a unique advantage here in, in healthcare because, you know, the, the thing is we're generally on the same team. Most people you're going to run into are are holding at, at you know, at first and foremost, a patient's interests. 
And that really makes them strong allies. So, so that is a very, very helpful pointer there, uh, uh, JP. Think about that even when you're super tired, that these people are suffering along with you and they, they want what's best for the patient. And I think uh, that goes especially true for, for the ancillary folks, um, the physical and occupational therapists, respiratory therapists, uh, people along those lines. The, the case managers can make or break you, right? I mean, if they if they don't want to dispo your patient early, you're you're kind of hosed with a long list, right? Right. And I mean, what what's the one of the primary functions of an intern is to get people off the list and get people out of the building, right? And the case managers are the ones who make that happen. Exactly, exactly. So let's move on to the to the final category, which may be the most complex, which is all the other physicians and surgeons and house officers in the hospital. What's your strategy there, JP? No, you know, as you said, this is certainly the most complex category because obviously these people are also physicians. So they're coming from the same training background as you. Um, If you're a neurosurgical intern, you're almost certainly dealing with people who are senior to you, either older residents or, you know, frequently attendings you're dealing with directly especially in the ED or in the trauma bay. Um, And so managing their level of comfort and their own anxieties about a given patient is all the more complex because you're, again, you're, you're coming from a similar professional level and, you know, interacting with and dealing with this group of people was actually one of the strongest uh, encouragements I had. And one of the, the, the primary impetus I had for this episode, because very frequently when you go down to the emergency department or the trauma bay and they've consulted you on someone who has a tiny touch of blood in their head after a fall. Um, Frequently, these disciplines don't review imaging themselves. They'll read reports. And so they have a report that says intracranial hemorrhage. You look at the scan, you see a tiny touch of blood. You know that this is not an emergency. You know that this patient's gonna be just fine And in some cases of polytrauma or people who have medical comorbidities, you know that these words intracranial hemorrhage are really just a giant distraction stopping the rest of the hospital staff from dealing with the patient's real problems, right? And so your job then becomes to go down there and as important as it is to talk to the patient and let them know that they're going to be okay, your job really becomes reorienting the other physicians to know in their bones, hey, this bleeding in the head, it's a tiny little thing, it's not a big deal, not what you should be focusing on. Take a look at this other problem that's much more acute and that actually needs to be solved for this patient right now. Exactly, exactly. And it, it is it is a little bit like that in the sense that, you know, one of the reasons it's so enjoyable to be a neurosurgeon in training is that you're always getting these battlefield promotions. So you're gonna find that Oftentimes, you're dealing with people many times your senior, and I'll never forget at USC, the PGY2's job was to deal with the general surgery attendings in, mm-hmm. in SICU. And, you know, it's, it's incredibly intimidating. And, and you've got to know how to do it without being too heavy-handed and calling the chiefs in for backup or whatever. But it, it really is kind of a special skill set to be able to manage people that are so far ahead of you in years. Uh, and not lose your cool and, and make them comfortable, right? Make them your allies. And, uh, and the funny story at USC was there, I won't uh, name names, but there was a very famous, very flamboyant trauma surgeon uh, who was on TV a lot. 
And every time we did a ventriculostomy, he would collect all the general surgery people. And that's that's an army of people, 30, 40 people rounding together. And because, uh, you know, they didn't do elective cases too much. Right. So they'd come right. around, around at 10 a.m. You'd be put at a ventriculostomy and twist twist drill. Right. And they're narrating it while you're doing it. It's like he's like, watch, it's going to happen. And they're going to feel a pop. And it's like, come on, dude, you've never done this in your life. Right. <laughs> and, but it looks super cool. And, and, and if you if you get out there and say, well, that guy's just a joker. Um, you know, you make an enemy. But on the other hand, if you say, hey, listen, you know, why don't you guys come take a look and how we do this and maybe not let them do it, but have a role in it. That, that They're like your allies for life. And the funny thing is this attending ended up at University of Miami later. And, and when I arrived here in Miami, the, the guy was in attending here uh, still. Oh, wow. he, he's a lot older. Right. And he's he's I think, you know, who we're talking about. And he was the same way here. But he still remembered me, you know, because because I didn't you know, some of the other residents tried to make the guy look like an idiot. And he wasn't, an, he was not an idiot. He was just flamboyant. Right. And so you're right, JP, how you deal with these folks is really important. Yeah. And I'll tell you the, the big lesson I take from that story is that never treat someone like you won't meet them again, because you never know when your paths will cross a second time. Um, but I, I think the most important thing that this year has taught me in terms of dealing with other physicians and dealing with their own stress and their own anxiety about a patient is understanding that there's such a such a bridge of knowledge uh, between you and people in other specialties, and you feel it most when you actually have to consult someone. You know, if you have you, if you have a patient with a severe arrhythmia and you have to call cardiology, and you can hear them rolling their eyes over the phone because you're calling them to interpret an EKG or something. You know, I, I can hear them sighing under their breath when I call for recommendations, and I hear in their tone exactly the tone I take when people call me for an incredibly non-urgent CT of the head, right? And so the lesson that I have been repeatedly taught this year is to understand that when you walk into a room and there's a consulting doctor who's asked you for help on somebody, maybe it's a nonsense consult and they're just trying to cover all their bases and check all their boxes but maybe they really don't know if this is an emergency for the patient or not. And I walk in the room and I know that this patient's going to be okay. The doctor who called me doesn't. And somehow we have to close that gap of knowledge so I can make them understand, uh, you know, this is not a problem. They're going to be okay. And I, I think that that lesson can really generalize to all walks of life, but certainly all facets of, of practice as a neurosurgeon, whether it be with a patient, with ancillary staff, or with other doctors, to just realize that frequently we are called to answer questions that we know the answers to, but the fact that they're calling us about it means they don't have that knowledge, and a lot of the fears and the anxieties that they're dealing with are because they don't look at these scans a million times a day, they don't see intracranial bleeds or spine fractures, you know, how many times you get called with a transverse process fracture. They don't know that this is not a big deal, even though we do. And you have to take that moment to, you know, take a breath and remind yourself, okay, they really think this might be a serious problem for the patient. Let me give them the respect to, you know, to address them as such. Excellent. Excellent. Well, that's that concludes it for this episode. And please tune in for more about Hell Week. I hope you're learning a lot.